uh, Sheikh Nazim Alakani came into my heart and, and showed me things uh, that I had never seen before spiritually. I mean, he was he was just there as a guide. So this is this is one of the reasons why I was shifted from um, being a Christian, where I met many good people, but I never met a holy person. But with Sheikh Nazim Alakani, Allah bless his soul, um, I met a holy person, and I saw that there was not only insight in uh, spiritual matters, but power. I'm Sadia Tariq, and you're listening to Thani, the podcast. I believe everybody has a story, and Thani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences, life lessons, and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories or they being part of us in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes and reflections. In conversation with Paul Abdul Vadud Sutherland, who is a writer and poet and became a Sufi Muslim in 2004. In this podcast, uh, Sir Vadud explains to us his journey into Islam the mysterious veils of Allah, suffering and our journey towards Allah. And last but not the least, he um, recites a poem that he has written for his Sheikh. Thank you for taking time out to listen to the podcast and please feel free to share it with your friends and family. Okay, so um, one, two, three. So th- thank you so much uh, for uh, being on Hani. Uh, it's absolutely an honor and a delight uh, to have you on the podcast. Thank you, sir. Welcome. So I um, let's let's uh, sort of uh, uh, dive right in. Uh, please tell us who uh, Paul Sutherland. Uh, well, I was born in Canada in 1947 so i'm now 73 soon to be 74 years old i always had some inkling or some sensitivity towards spiritual things and one of the events that stands out to me is when i was a boy of about 10 i believe at a christian summer camp i uh, instead of bowing my head in this service, in this chapel, which was open to the sky, I kept my head raised Mm -hmm. at that point in the service when everyone else was bowing their head. Mm -hmm. And I saw the nature in front of me of the hills and sun and clouds transformed into a a spectacle of beauty and power beyond anything I could imagine. Mm. And and that event um, told me many things about myself because I was not that well liked uh, amongst people and I was not that much of a a great sportsman. but then I had this, 
and I went to the vicar and said, look, what's, what I've experienced, as if this justified everything he was saying. And he looked at me like I was crazy. So I, I learned, I learned I had this particular relationship with existence, but I may not be able to share it. And that was a struggle. It wasn't long afterwards, maybe four or five years afterwards, that I began to write poetry as an answer to this, as another way of approaching this amazement. And I was playing football with my friends on the street and suddenly I realized I should be up in the attic of our house, a detached house in Hamilton, Canada, and should be writing poetry. Mm. And I rapidly went from that to, to just, uh, feeling um, I had to engage with everything, I had to feel and love everything. And through circumstances, I met um, a doctor, Dr. Fish, and this was when I was about 1920. And he said, you must, uh, I know the job for you, you must work in the hospital. And I took a job as an orderly in an intensive care unit. And I, and again, this feeling, this uh, sensitivity towards what's outside of me mm. was very strong. And I identified mm. with the patients and I wrote and wrote. At some point I decided I had to travel. Um, I thought what they couldn't do, I would do. They couldn't walk far. So I would walk and I walked the length of what is called the Bruce Trail in Canada, um, probably about 150 miles uh, through countryside and woods and everything. And then I decided I'd take a ship to England and walk from the south of England to the north of Scotland where my namesake comes from, Sutherland. Mm -hmm. And I should reach the Lake District where my grandparents, who I loved very much, um, who said, you must go to the Lake District if you're going to go to England. Mm. So that was my, my intention, and I walked and walked. Um, I made it to the Lake District, and I started to work with disabled children in the residential care. I kept writing, but then I lost whatever sort of uh, sensitivity that I had towards contemporary writing. I lost it. And I only wrote in with a black Indian ink pen, um, my a journal, a journals actually, more than one, about my life with these children. And then I went on to work with disabled adults and I wrote in the same manner, quite flowery Victorian <laughs> script <laughs> with a black Indian ink pen. And, um, but I just kept my head, the wheels turning, you know, and I experienced more things. Um, and eventually, uh, eventually left that and went to Faroe in the North uh, the Atlantic Ocean between the North Sea and the Atlantic mm. uh, and lived there for 10 months in a hut. And um, started to write more seriously again. And when I came back to the mainland, I worked again, I this was all, you know, voluntary residential sort of caring. It was not really official stuff. 
I didn't do any official stuff for a long time. And there were, of course, were relationships in and out between this, you know, heterosexual relationships were going on too. And on Farrell, again, I just tapped into my love of, of nature and its extremes and came back to the mainland and I helped a, a woman who was in her 70s look after her mother who was 100 years old. And then I got involved with uh, disabled teenagers. And then I finally settled down in York. Do you know the city of York? Sure. In, yeah, yeah, the city of York. And I stayed there for 20 years and developed my writing. Uh, I worked in the Castle Museum, which was another fascinating place. But in the mid 1980s, I had experiences which were more than what I experienced when I was 10 years old. And they were specifically to do with Christianity or to at least do with civilized religions. Um, and I experienced, you know, the, the strength of, an, of the other, as it were. And I wrote the book called uh, The Holy Week Sequence. And then I went to university as a very mature student. And I realized my inner world was crumbling. And in 2004, after getting the first in the university um, and teaching a little bit, I met my wife, Afifa Amatala, and she said, you are a Sufi and you've been a Sufi all your life. Um, so I, I followed that. Mm. And as soon as I began to follow those principles, uh, Sheikh Nazim Alakani came into my heart and, and showed me things uh, that I had never seen before spiritually. I mean, he was, he was just there as a guide. So this is, this is one of the reasons why I was shifted from um, being a Christian where I met many good people, but I never met a holy person. But with Sheikh Nazim Alakani, Allah bless his soul, um, I met a holy person. And I saw that there was not only insight in uh, spiritual matters, but power, um, power to affect your life and affect other people's life in the best possible way. And, and that has been, you know, that's where I am now uh, with uh, more books published and uh, the poems, The Life of the Prophet Muhammad, um, you know, that's now had almost a thousand copies sold. And that again was an inspiration that arose out of this transformation really from uh, from a Christian perspective to a Sufi Muslim perspective um, but I've always been interested in the outsider so that might be a factor in this that I perceived Islam as the outsider in the West mm. and that sort of is where I am now you know um, trying to understand the position of Islam in the West I'm married, we don't have children, but my wife has children from a previous marriage. So that's been interesting too, um, to take these ideas and see how they might uh, mature with real relationships. And I feel my poetry has matured, uh, become more humane. I think I have become, dare I say it, a stuff for a lot, uh, more humane. Um, since becoming a Muslim. Wow, Floyd, 
totally, totally floored. How beautiful is that? So whilst you were talking, it just uh, occurred to me that, uh, as you said, that the Nazim sort of came in your heart. So there is always this slight whisper in the heart. There is always this indication, even in the Quran, even in nature, that um, uh, that a lot of things or substances or entities are veiled. And of course, there is uh, the divine wisdom of this this will so what i'm what i'm saying is as as they often say is that there is ghayb uh, you know there are certain things which you can see and then there is a lot more that you can't see and you uh, have to be very very conscious of that and i'm just wondering from a layman from a mortal's point of view that what is the purpose of this will why is, is this this mysterious element uh, to the revelation? And as, as Allah also says that the signs are there for those who want to see. So, I mean, this is a sort of a multi-pronged uh, question, which might just sort of take up our entire uh, conversation. But the purpose of this mystery, one, two, again, we have been assured, reassured and promised that the signs are out there for those who want to see. And so there is, of course, there is uh, also acknowledgement that there is a blind spot. I think, I think that's very, very important what you're saying. I mean, from my perspective, I'm not a great sheikh and others, uh, sheikhs uh, know far more than me. But so much is given to us. I mean, one of the reasons why Sheikh, Sheikh um, Nazim respond, I responded to him was that he, he reinforced some of my ideas that were so vague in my mind. He gave, he gave me a way of looking at them. Mm. So for example, he gave the image of a person walking along a precipice with a precipice on one side and a great drop on the other side and this, this path. Mm -hmm. And he said, you'll be blindfolded until you're strong enough to see that. Mm -hmm. And he gave the image of, of um, uh, a guide through the, in the Himalayas taking a person up a mountain slope, they would have to blindfold that person because they'd be terrified at what they would see. Mm. And I think there's some, for me, there's some truth in that. I had some veils removed. The question is, for those who want to. Right. So where, this is the, the great dichotomy between free will and that higher will. Mm -hmm. How does one reach a point that they want to see? Mm -hmm. Without 
would I, if I had never had those experiences, would I really be seeking them? But then I was seeking something, Sadia. Sure, of course. That, that's the fundamental. I was seeking something. There was some uh, dissatisfaction. I was dyslexic. I, like I said, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have, you know, that certainty of the, of, uh, of the mundane world. I didn't have that desire to, to make money, to uh, have property. I wanted to travel on a ship across the ocean <laughs> with what I owned was on my back. You know, why do, you, why do we make these kinds of decisions before we know they are decisions? Yeah. And how then do we actually escape the idea of destiny? You know, it, how do we give to our free will destiny? You know, we're born to certain parents. We didn't control that. Mm. We're born in a certain place. We didn't control that. We had certain people around us at the beginning. We didn't control that. When did we start to control this life? Right, right. To some extent, I feel very much that the veils will, will be removed at the right time. Mm. Mm. And to adopt a feeling of humility, as T.S. Eliot said, humility is endless. To adopt a feeling or attitude of humility towards your life and towards what happens is preparing yourself, making yourself receptive to those veils being lifted. Now, I completely accept the Islamic point of view that the, the five daily prayers, those pillars that Islam talks about, promotes belief in one God, uh, charity, the, the five daily prayers, Ramadan, Hajj. I, I completely accept that these actions lead to more than those actions. They lead on to something else. It's, it's the repetition uh, and the sincerity you bring to those actions that it changes um, our perspective and our perception, um, which as that happens and we become more receptive to the impulse and the uh, messages coming from some higher authority, we definitely are uh, shown more. But is it important for us to see, you know? Um, we may feel it's more important just to be able to, to do, to help, um, to care, to um, feel that you're caring more for the people that you love than you did before. You know what I mean? Um, you may not want to see anything. Mm. You may be completely satisfied. Absolutely. With just the knowledge that something abysmal you did yesterday, it seems you're not quite doing it today, you know? Um, 
And the promise is that if you stay with these, these uh, disciplines, they will uh, affect um, your overall performance in life. So I, I totally uh, agree with you. And uh, just to sort of sum up, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. So, so you're saying that uh, the teacher will uh, essentially only appear when the student <laughs> is ready, but primarily the tools uh, for that readiness uh, is um, our uh, humility and uh, sincerity. Yes. And then, of course, the pillars are uh, leading us again. It's, it's a path. So they are sort of helping us uh, step up and forward. And, and reading the Quran, um, you know, reading, uh, studying uh, Sufi uh, poets or reading the Quran or, uh, you know, Hadith, these mm. all help uh, zikr. So what, what I'm saying is that this these things like sincerity and humility can seem a long ways away from us. Mm. You know, they can seem like lights on the horizon. But yeah. the tools that uh, Islam provides for us that have come down through us from Muhammad are, are real tools that help us get to where we want to be. Um, so not only are we, are we being sincere in our prayers our prayers are leading us towards sincerity sure sure i mean this is this there is this beautiful sense in the, <clears throat> the cuthbert uh, of uh, the juma prayer where it says you would not have found guidance had we not guided us you know if we if allah had not guided us we would not have found guidance indeed and this, this, this mystery is like a person on the desert looking for an oasis, and the oasis is coming to that person. Mm. And we have to trust in that, I think. You know, it's quite interesting in Christianity where uh, Jesus praises, you know, says, you believe because you see. But blessed are those who believe who do not see. You know, uh, that idea. Mm. See, I'm a, I'm a very mixed uh, bag, as they used to say back in the 1960s, um, of, of different um, faiths. I was very interested in Zen Buddhism. And... Um, tried to make myself suffer fasting, you know, going without food and drink for days <laughs> until I went wild <laughs> and ate everything I could see in sight. <laughs> you know, but I was always sort of experimenting um, with what this, what this other might mean. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've got these different sources now, um, you know, uh, of Zen, Zen and also Tao, Tao, like the way is empty, but use cannot drink it. Okay, what's that? The way is empty, but use cannot exhaust it. You see, yeah. this is uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, um, and, and uh, the sense of 
being empty of your ego and allowing yourself to be receptive to something else. Mm. And now it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the Tao because I only a short while ago I was reading and where, where he says that look and it can't be seen, listen and it can't be heard, reach and it can't be grasped, above it isn't bright, below it isn't dark. Mashallah, wonderful. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, it's... Um... So, but it's also you just spoke about uh, suffering where you sort of immersed yourself. One, you were, of course, as you, as you said, you were um, tending to the sick, uh, which was by choice, of course, and then you decided to take this walk. Um, so the, essentially, and, and your heart uh, and that, that unrest would always uh, sort of gravitate towards suffering uh, in the outside world um, and then helping somehow. Mm, so, right. I, so, and then of course you had the, the words and the expression to, to write uh, what you wrote, but then everybody isn't like that. Everybody doesn't sort of experience, uh, I personally feel that suffering uh, inside and outside is actually uh, one of those um, lights not at the end of the tunnel but right in the tunnel sort of directing you so would you would you care to sort of uh, shed some light on the deep uh, sort of relationship uh, of uh, of us being humans um, and suffering well <clears throat> I think this is a very, a very personal um, um, element to what we're talking about. And I mean, the suffering goes on. Uh, sometimes when you, when I looked at my, my shake, I would think um, everything's okay with him because he has you know, the veils have been removed and, and so on. But when I thought about it more, I thought, because you're closer to the fire or to the light, doesn't mean you're not suffering. You may even suffer more mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because you're more sensitive to everything. Sure, sure, of course. And uh, to, to help the human being become sensitive, my grandfather did did say when I left Canada, he said, uh, "You have to suffer to become sensitive." This is why uh, negative things will happen to you, and they'll be hard. Sure, of course. And you will have to go through them. Mm. And the proud, often arrogant young man thinks, no, I don't, you know, no, I don't. Um, but the old man here now says, yes, I did. And they were terrible, but I had to go through them. Um, I suppose the question really comes in, involves consciousness to some extent, conscience and consciousness. It, it involves Sensing, you know, seeing the signs, 
of where the suffering might be coming towards you and reacting, responding before it hits you. Mm. I think that's fair enough. I don't think you have to just go into things blindly. Mm. Though certainly I did in the past at times. But now I have hopefully through my practice, more awareness. And, and that does not mean that I won't suffer. It means I will suffer differently. I, I don't know how to explain that. I remember once talking to a vicar who was a friend of mine. And I was really full of myself and saying, oh, you know, tell me what's the difference between ignoble and noble suffering, you know. And he said, God ennobles all suffering. So all of us upon a Watala ennobles our suffering. Okay. So you know we give it over to him. We we give we give our our angst, anguishes to our Sheikh. Our Sheikh gives it to Muhammad alayhi salam and Muhammad gives it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this chain, this passing on is a way of helping us uh, see our suffering, but also doing something with it, um, rather than becoming morbid, violent, or destructive, or uh, suicidal, or, you know. Um, there is this therapeutic aspect, definitely. We are sick. That, that is the reality. We, we come into this world sick. And as we grow, <clears throat> as children, we have protection. But gradually the protection is taken away. And as teenagers, we realize how sick we really are. Mm. How difficult. Why are we here? We start asking all those questions. And then as we start to become adults <clears throat> and suffer, in a more complete, conscious way, we start to gain some perspective on this suffering. We start to gain some sense that this is what life is part of life. And if you live, you're going to experience moments, days, hours, years of negativity. And you've got to deal with that. And if you're going to deal with it in a violent way by challenging everything that challenges you, you're going to end up in prison. Or you're going to end up in an inner prison. I'm sorry, trains go by here once in a while. Um, and maybe it's just as black and white as that. You just suddenly realize gradually, suddenly, shock events, suffering you cause other people, that you don't want this. You want something else. Yeah. And you direct your suffering away from other people and away from yourself. Uh, and you try to do something with it. So is this the ground of art? Is this where you know create creating something starts to come in? Certainly for me, there's a therapeutic side to my writing. And, and at first it was really, you know, just get it out, get it out, get it out. 
Um, and still there was tons to be got out. And, and maybe other people help, discussions, you know, um, friends, study groups, education helps because you focus on something else, not your own problems. You focus on, you know, big ideas. But gradually, to me, it all comes down to faith, you know, comes to uh, spirituality. And, and trying to see how in that growth, from being a child to being an older person, you've been guided and you have grown. You have learned something. And what you've learned has affected your heart. You know, it's affected your heart. And, and you're a different person. And, and that changes your idea about suffering. Now, I mean, I'm healthy, but I know somewhere along the line, it's not going to be that way. Mm. I am going to suffer physically. Mm. Mm. So in a way, you learn to review your own suffering in the past and you learn to understand that it's coming in the future. I don't Brilliant. know if that helps Brilliant. at all. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. I am totally, totally with you on this. Uh, uh, I, I totally agree. It's... Uh, um, almost uh, uh, sort of you uh, articulating what I feel. So totally with you, sir. So you, um, can I uh, request, uh, just uh, sort of coming towards the end of the podcast, can I uh, request you to um, share some of your work with us? Um, yes. Since it certainly. has been so um, important for you, uh, you know, your words might resonate with me, with the audience, with the listeners. Uh, I think I'd like to read from my new book, um, from Beacon Press, Beacon Books, sorry, Beacon Books, um, called Servant of the Loving One. Uh, the Loving One being, you know, Allah Subhanahu Wa That's my name, Abdul Wadud. Um, and it also relates to my relationship with my Sheikh, Sheikh Nazim al Um There's many, in the book, there are mostly poems. In fact, you could all, you could call it all the way through poems. Uh, but there are times when it's more um, <clears throat> the prose poems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this one is called With the Children. And uh, my sheikh always had sweets or something for the children. Mm. And this is taking place outside of his house in Lefka, in North Cyprus. Mm -hmm. The sheikh lived down a narrow, dirty walled lane, a mosque at its top entrance, and then around a curve along a single track which passed by his front door on a sharp bend. No pavement or sidewalks, just a shared way with many potholes. His habitation, no wonder. His front door's bottom left blue panel had been kicked in, not by force or anger, but endless child intrusions. 
There were always rioting kitties around, through and inside the house. Upstairs, at least one worn shutter hung at an angle. Youngsters raced outside. The door banged again, and the panel splintered a little more. Fruit and vegetables were piled in crates outside the door to feed the large household and visiting murids. A murid would stand there sorting and cutting out bad parts and bruises. The sheikh might come by with his uncountable pockets in long waistcoat and coat and plaid shirt containing money in rolled up notes, a cypress wood tasby, slim bottles of rose perfume more expensive than A.W. could have guessed, and in another pocket, or scattered among them all, sweets for those raving youngsters, the boys, their hair gleaming, the girls, their curls covered by fine scarves bright as hibiscus. His deep hidden pockets like Captain Kangaroo from Abdul Wadud's boyhood TV days, the sheikh's pouches bulged. He would rummish around inside for so long until their naive excitement burst. All the stuff visitors gave him, he held a short time until he passed it on to someone else, distributing a world of commerce through his weathered clothing. Children gathered, almost knocking him off his feet, yelping, screeching, as they had clustered centuries earlier around the Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad alayhi salatu salam. May Allah grant them all peace. So A.W. is the name I use through the book. I use sometimes I, and I use my name, Abdul Wadud. It's, it's, sorry, that's a little bit confusing who Abdul Wadud is. He's, uh, he's sometimes a he, and he's sometimes an I. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people should be confident about their identity. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But what a beautiful uh, uh, vadud, which is uh, unconditional love, which is only uh, and only uh, possible uh, from the creator and no one else. Beautiful, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So it was absolutely uh, lovely, lovely talking to you. Uh, one last thing, if the audience... Um, the listeners want to know more about you. Where can they, uh, where can they look up? Where can they reach you? Well, there's quite a lot of, about me on the internet uh, under Paul Sutherland or Paul Paul Abdul Wadud Sutherland. Um, uh, my different uh, publications, and there's uh, a website. I have a website called Author Paul. Sutherland.com, www.authorpaulsutherland.com. But my new book, Servant of the Loving One, hasn't quite managed to get there as yet. Um, but Beacon, Beacon Press is a good place. Beacon Books is a good place to start. They're, mm -hmm. they're from Bradford. Okay. Uh, and you can find their website. And the book's on Amazon. So from there, you could go to other sites. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, thank you. So thank you for uh, sharing uh, bits and pieces of yourself uh, with us, your wisdom um, and your work. 
uh, and of course your time. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum.